Our text is Joshua 24, the last sentence of verse 15. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. After the sermon, we'll sing together hymn 53, Mighty Fortress is Our God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today is October the 30th. That means tomorrow is Reformation Day. Now there's a word that stirs up the heart of Reformed people. The Reformation. The Reformation of the 16th century is what we're talking about. It brings to mind Martin Luther who nailed his 95 theses to the chapel door in Wittenberg. The reason he did that is the church had become so incredibly corrupt. And Martin Luther was striving to reform it from within. What he was trying to do was to get the Bible back into the church so that it's preached, so the people can hear it, and to get the Bible into every, every home, into, into the hands of all the people. To be reformed... You know, maybe someone asks you, so you're reformed, what does that mean? To be reformed means you take God's Bible seriously. To be reformed means you take the Bible and say, this is God's word for me. Teaches me about salvation, lets me know who God is, and how to live my life to his praise and glory. Now, Martin Luther got a lot of flack for those 95 theses, the the emperor and the, the nobles of the land and the spiritual leaders, the priests and all these guys. They said, Martin Luther, you have to recant. you got to take it back. You're out of your mind. You want to put the Bible back in the church? You want to give the Bible to the people? Are you out of your mind? You can't do that. Well, Martin Luther didn't back down. In fact, he said, unless you prove to me by scripture and plain reason that I am mistaken... I cannot and will not recant. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To, against, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. There's nothing else I can do. God help me. Amen. He stuck to it. And he became, let's say, the father of the great reformation of the 16th century. He was followed by many others, like John Calvin. If Martin Luther really got the reformation going... Calvin was its scholar, its theologian, and he's left us with sermons and commentaries and his magnus opus, his big work, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which any serious theologian or Christian reads to this day. He died at the age of 52, worn out because of all the work that he did for the church. You know, in Hebrews 11, we read about the heroes of faith, men and women who died because they stood up for God. The 16th century has lots of martyrs too. Men and women, boys and girls, they were hacked with a sword. They were burned at the stake. They were buried alive. They were home. Our, our Belgic confession, sealed in blood, Guido de Brat died writing the Belgic confession and preaching the word of God. He died just because he dared to say, I want to preach the word of God. 
He wasn't allowed to do that. If you have a Bible, you're dead. And indeed, he died. Brothers and sisters, we are, we are left with the, the gifts of men like Guido de Bra, Martin Luther, John Calvin. The Reformation has brought about a tremendous change in our world. But the thing about Reformation is it's not just a historical fact, something in the past. Luther and Calvin would be the first to say Reformation is to be ongoing and repeated. We have a Latin expression, semper reformanda, and that means always reforming. The church and Christians always need to check, you know, to, to be reforming in the sense that, do I take the Bible seriously as the word of God? Do I rigorously read it and study it and apply it to my life? You know, when Joshua says in our text, and this is almost 3,000 years before Luther and Calvin, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He was exhibiting ongoing reformation, which is what we will see in our sermon. Reformation is not just a, a historical event in the past. Reformation is what we ought to be doing today, brothers and sisters. And we're going to look at that this afternoon under this theme. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua personally takes a stand. Israel personally needs to take a stand. And we all personally need to take a stand. Joshua 24 is the last chapter of the book of Joshua. And we meet Joshua near the end of his life. He's 110 years old. And he is about to die. We all know who Joshua is, right? Remember that young man with Caleb, the spies who went into, into, the, into Canaan? And he says, the Lord will give it to us. And after Moses was dead, it was Joshua who led Israel into the promised land. And they took it over. And they were now settling down into it. But after all this, Joshua had a burden on his heart. And the burden was this. He knew that his people had a love affair with idolatry and with other gods. It's nothing new. You know, the father of Israel is Jacob. Well, it's Jacob's wife, Rachel, who took her father's household gods out of Mesopotamia. From the very beginning, Israel went after other gods. And they picked up a whole bunch more in Egypt. And now in the promised land, as they moved around and looked around, oh wow, there are lots of gods, Baal, Ashtoreth, Chemosh, gods that, that, well, quite frankly, they liked a lot. And what that meant is their worship of God was shallow. It was superficial. So what Joshua's doing here at the end of his life is he's saying to his people, he's saying, you need to choose. Yes or no? Are you committed to God or not committed to God? He says in verse 14, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped in the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Pretty straightforward. Get rid of your gods. Throw away your idols. But before Israel could say, Oh sure, we'll do that. Joshua adds, he says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, 
then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. People, says Joshua, you have options. If you don't want to worship the Lord God, if you don't want to worship Yahweh, we got lots of gods. On the east side of the river, the west side of the river, choose whatever you like. Take one from the east, take two from the west, take two from each. Have all the gods you want. There's tons out there. You know, Joshua almost sounds like he's being funny. But it's not a laughing matter. It's a matter of your soul and your everlasting salvation. This is dead serious stuff. What Joshua is saying, it is all or nothing. You can't sit on the fence. You can't think that you can worship God and idols. You cannot be wishy-washy. This is something that our Lord Jesus Christ also made clear during his ministry. For instance, in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, after outlining there are two paths through life. One that leads to life and one to death. And then Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are words we have to pay attention to. Because when Jesus says that, he's not talking about people on the fringes. He's talking about people sitting in the pew. People who are regarded as solid Christians. Perhaps even leaders in the church. Jesus Christ says, you'll find out on the day of judgment when you come up to me say, Lord, Lord. He said, I never knew you. Both our Lord Jesus Christ and Joshua make it very, very clear that simply belonging to the church, being a part of the people of God, that doesn't save you. But only a living faith where God is number one and, and, and worship for him is not shared with anyone else. That is the only way to salvation. So what Joshua does here in, in this passage and in our text He's an old man now. He's 110 years old. He's been battling for 90 years. You can just imagine this, this guy battle-scarred. You know, his skin is weathered. He's been under that hot Palestine sun day in and day out. But this old man, he rises up as tall and proud as he can. And he yells out for the entire people to hear, You can do what you want I and my house, we will serve the Lord forever. Sounds like a, a Martin Luther. Here I stand. There's nothing else I can do. God help me. Amen. It almost seems like Joshua is using a little bit of eloquent trickery here. You know, you look at the verses before and after our text. First of all, he says, you got options. You know, all kind of gods out there if you want one. And you know what? You're, you're never going to fear God anyway. As a matter of fact, God doesn't like you for the, the way that you behave. It almost sounds like, like Joshua is con cajoling them. You know, sort of tricking them into saying, Oh, no, 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 no. We're, we're not those kind of people. We will worship the one true God. But Joshua knows them. He knows what's in their heart. He knows what Israel has been doing. All along, they love idols. They love to worship them. 
they're not going to change and not easily. He says in verse 19, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. God is not going to forgive you. Not after all that he has done for you. You know, we read the whole chapter outlines how the Lord chose Abraham from a, from a pagan background and, and made Abraham and his descendants his people. He took them from Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. He gave them homes and cities and vineyards that they had not built. He gave them everything. And still they worshipped other gods. Joshua says, God's not going to forgive that. He's not going to turn a blind eye. You need to change. Deep, deep change inside. You need to repent or there is no future with God. You notice that in these verses, Joshua likes to use the word serve. And the word serve can mean labor, like physical labor. It can mean a slave who serves his master. But whenever the Bible speaks about serving God, it... it it implies, it, it suggests, it demonstrates joy and liberation. We think of the Levites who served in the temple. You know, Psalm, Psalm 134 says, Come, bless the Lord with one accord, you faithful servants of the Lord, who praise him in his house by night and serve him there with all your might. You know, to be a Levite in the temple was an incredible privilege. To be there in the presence of God, to see those sacrifices, to see the incense being burned, and God smelled it and loved it and loved his people. Absolutely amazing. But the fact is, every believer serves God, can serve God. And brothers and sisters, the beauty of serving God is it's joyful, it's liberating. It liberates the soul. It puts your soul at rest. Because when you love God, when he's number one in your life, and you commit your life to him, you find an amazing God whose face is turned towards us in love and peace, who washes away our sins and casts them into the depths of the sea, who restores us, who guides us to be able to live to his praise and to his glory. What is so heartwarming about what Joshua is saying here is that he makes clear that our house will serve the Lord. So Joshua and his wife and his children together serve the Lord. You know, yeah, he's, he's a warrior, right? This, this man, he goes out to battle almost every day, but when he goes home at night, he doesn't go to bed. He doesn't talk about all his, his fights and look at this wound and boy, I'm bleeding here. He talked with his wife and he talked with his children about the Lord and read the word and he prayed with them. And as a family, they were together walking in the ways of the Lord, living to his praise and glory. You can kind of understand why in a lot of homes or in some homes, you will find the plaque that's our text, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is an example to all of us to follow. 
And to be honest, brothers and sisters, I, I don't think there's a person here who wouldn't desire more than anything else in life to see children and grandchildren walking in the ways of the Lord. It means more to us than money. It means more to us than any kind of pleasure to see my children love God. To see my grandchildren walk in the ways of the Lord. That's the most beautiful thing that we can imagine and have and enjoy. That brings us to our second point. Israel personally needs to take a stand. You might think, brothers and sisters, this is really not our text because in our text, all we find is Joshua's personal confession, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But actually, he is talking to Israel in our text, even in this little verse. And you see that in the word at the beginning of the sentence, but. It's amazing that when you see the plaque on the wall, it always says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But the text says, but as for me and my house. So Joshua is not just confessing his faith, he is challenging the people around him. He's exhorting them. He's admonishing them. He's inviting them to join with him that they may all experience the same thing that he is experiencing. You know, Joshua in Hebrew is translated in Greek into Jesus. And Joshua is certainly a forerunner and a type of his Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that our Lord Jesus Christ himself was very gentle, very meek, very loving, and a good shepherd who says, Come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Both Joshua and his Lord Jesus Christ are inviting the people to come and know God and, and to worship him alone. So when, when Joshua says, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, what he's really doing is saying, Join me. Let's do this together. The thing is, every Israelite was saying it. If you read the whole passage, you, you read what they said. You know what? We do want to serve God. We do want to get rid of our idols. But Joshua doesn't believe them. He doesn't buy it. Israel's entire history had been filled with idolatry. They've always had their gods. He doesn't believe it. That right now they say, we are going to change forever. And Joshua is saying to them, you know, your, your talk is cheap. What's in your heart? What's your intention? What are you going to do for the rest of your life? You know, there's something about our text that I should share with you. It's from the Hebrew. Hebrew is like no other language. Even Latin and Greek, which are dead languages, are nothing like it. But when Joshua in our text says, we will serve the Lord, he uses a verb tense, which means ongoing, continual, repeated. In other words, he's not just saying, I made my decision, and my family made a decision to serve the Lord. We made a decision to go on again and again all our life long to serve the Lord. Not just to take a stand today, but that our whole life is ongoing, you know, searching for God, meeting with God, 
loving him and serving him alone. And that's what Joshua is communicating to Israel. You know, don't just say today we'll get rid of our idols. We will serve Yahweh. No, says Joshua, what, what we need here is a real commitment from the heart. You need to make a choice. And you need to keep it for the rest of your life. We're reminded here of what Joshua's predecessor said, Moses, in Deuteronomy 30, when he was near the end of his life, preaching his last sermons, he said, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, choose life, so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. It has to be a real choice. And that choice has to be lifelong. It has to be heartfelt, thought out, total commitment to the Lord. Remember that we talked in our introduction about semper reformanda. Reformation is an ongoing reformation. And that's what Joshua is talking about here in our text. An ongoing reformation that you keep evaluating in your life. Is God number one? Am I serving him? Now the question is, how do you do that? How was Israel to do this? Well, obviously they had to repent. They had to say to God, we made a real mess of our lives. You weren't always number one. We loved the gods. We loved money. We loved all kinds of things. But Lord, forgive us our sins and allow us to change. That's the first thing. The second thing that they need is the Bible. Now we see later on in the chapter that, that Joshua proclaims the, the laws and the decrees to Israel and he writes it down in the book of the law. Now that's the Bible. It doesn't just have rules and regulations. It's got the gospel. It speaks about a God who delivered his people out of Egypt out of the bondage of sin, out of death, and now that they are his people and he's adopted them, he's showing them how to live their lives to the praise and the glory of God. Joshua gives Israel the Bible. And the Bible, brothers and sisters, is at the very heart of all reformation. And we're going to look at that a little further, but we'll do that in our last point. We all personally need to take a stand. What we need, brothers and sisters, is the Bible, also known as the scriptures, or the word of God. But that's not the only thing we need. And the Bible is very clear on that, as Joshua was talking about a covenant relationship. And when you have a covenant relationship with God, it's not just the Bible, but it's the response to the Bible, which is prayer. Bible reading and prayer are the two essential things for reformation and for serving the Lord. If you only had the Bible, you would have a monologue, one person speaking. When you have the Bible and prayer, you have dialogue, two covenant people interacting with one another. Now, you know enough about life and about relationships. What makes a relationship tick, what makes a relationship work, is dialogue, conversation. 
The Word of God speaks to us in prayer. We speak back to God. And of all the things that we're going to talk about this afternoon, brothers and sisters, this is the most important thing for us to understand and to put into practice. If we're not doing it yet, it certainly has to start. You know, sometimes people say to me, you know, I pray to God, I talk to Him, but He never talks to me. Uh, yeah, the Bible is His, but a lot of those words are like 3,000 years old. Written for an agricultural Old Testament society. How does God speak to me in the Bible? Well, he does, brothers and sisters, when you take the Bible and you read it and you reflect on it and then you pray to God, at that moment you encounter God. You meet with God. You listen to him. You speak back to him about your hopes, your dreams, your fears, your struggles, your sins. He hears and then he speaks back to us in his word. It's amazing that if you enter into that circle, that dialogue, then what happens is when you read and you pray and you read again, you discover God is speaking to you very clearly, very personally in your life. So everybody has. They listen to a sermon. They read the Bible. They say, it's like God knew what I was doing that week. God knew what I needed that week. The Bible tells me, you know, about my sins, about my fears, my hurts and pains, God always speaks to me. The dialogue of Bible and prayer, brothers and sisters, that's reformation. And that's what it brings about a tremendous change in our lives. Now, it may be that you're thinking, you know what? My personal devotions aren't that hot. Oh, sure, you know, at the dinner table, we read the Bible and we pray. But my personal life... I read the Bible sometimes. I, I, I pray sometimes, although usually I fall asleep after a couple of sentences, and then you think, what does that mean about me as a Christian? What I'd like to share with you is that in the past year, I read quite a number of books on prayer by some of the leading theologians of our day. And it's amazing, men that we look up to and respect deeply they confess that there was a time in their life they didn't have a rich prayer life. And it made their faith flat. They needed to wake up, and God shook them up. God confronted them, and they learned to pray and to read and pray together and enter into a dialogue with God, a meeting with God, an encounter with God that absolutely transformed and reformed their lives. So brothers and sisters, this afternoon as we come to the end of our sermon, we think of those words, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, it makes for a nice plaque on your wall. But it can't just be a plaque on the wall that's looking down on you. This has to be our confession. We need to take a stand as a family. Commit ourselves to the Lord this afternoon as we, we hear God's word. Stand before the Lord as, as a person, as a couple, and as a family and say, today it changes. We are going to read God's word together rigorously. You know, read a passage and then we're going to talk about it 
see what this means for our lives, and then together we're going to pray to our God. And that will transform our marriages, our families, and our personal lives if God's word is that central and we speak to him in prayer. Amen. Amen.